to the Genius of Your Genes Summit. This topic that we're going to be discussing right now is just an enormous topic. And I think many, many people listening are either dealing with SIBO, so we'll go into what that is, or they're practitioners and they work constantly with people that have SIBO, they may or may not realize that it's the problem. But the more I looked into SIBO and the person that we're interviewing today is Siobhan Sarna, and she's really a master in this topic. And it's because she started off with SIBO, dealing with it herself, but then she went on and took it to a whole new level and has interviewed every top expert in the field. So there's literally nobody better that I could call and say, Siobhan, would you please do this summit with me? And she said, well, I don't, you know, not into the gene part of it. And so I'm going to sprinkle some of that in to the talk, but she's really an expert. So I'd like to welcome Siobhan Sarna, who I'll let, uh, hi, hi Siobhan. Hi, first of all. And then I'll let, well, I'll just let you tell a little bit about yourself and your story because I didn't read the bio, so. Don't even worry about it. All right. <laughs> the reason why it's really exciting to be here is because um, I want no one to go through what I went through, which was not knowing what was wrong with me for most of my life. And it turns out I do have SIBO and it's called small, it stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And when I first heard those words, I was like, oh, heck no, I don't have that. That sounds disgusting. <laughs> and I totally was in denial and disavowed. And it is the number one underlying cause of another sexy term, irritable bowel syndrome. <laughs> so that's, yeah. uh, that's what has plagued me uh, most of my life. And it came for me, my underlying cause was food poisoning. We'll talk a little bit about that. But it is a condition that can lead to diarrhea or constipation or both. And it is very uncomfortable. It also can lead to bigger health issues. And I'm a TV lady. I've been a host and a guest on the Home Shopping Network. We're cool now, so it's HSN, which is, a, for those of you not in this country, we, it's a shopping television station. And I'm a journalist also by nature. So when I realized, I finally got a, a proper diagnosis after false starts, thousands spent, you know, the whole tricky patient journey. Um, I swore that I would take all that I had learned and share with the world the people I had met so that none of my experience would be wasted. And that's why Donna is saying, why you're so kind and saying that I'm an expert. It's I have accumulated a lot of knowledge from interviewing the true clinicians, practitioners, nutritionists, researchers, and I act as a, a patient advocate to help people get connected and get informed. I think, honestly, every single person listening that isn't in perfect health, doesn't have perfect digestion, should seriously consider, you know, following the advice that we're going to give them. Because I really think people go undiagnosed all the time from this. And the way it's so easy to cause SIBO, there's so many different reasons that like myself, for example, and millions of women like me, I, you know, my skin broke out when I was a teenager. And back in those days, they gave you very high doses of uh, an antibiotic. And then, then they threw in the birth control pill for your skin. And, um, you know, that's been true. All these, I mean, most of us that started taking it, continued to take it for many, many years, 15, 20 years. So anybody with that history definitely should just say, I've got SIBO. 
and they end up with gas and bloating and we should go into all the symptoms, but I don't care whether people get tested or not. I think everybody should follow the advice that we're giving people right now. So let's start with, um, well, let's see, how did you finally begin to realize that this was your problem? Because it's kind of just recently come on the forefront as a problem. And doctors don't know, most doctors know nothing about it and don't even consider it as a potential problem. And that is part of the mystery that I want to have revealed is because you're right, most, well, first of all, there's not formal training that is expansive on, on SIBO in medical school. Hopefully that's changing. Um, it's maybe, it's a mention, it's a page or two in a textbook. Um, there are definitely gaps in the, in the knowledge base out there in medical schools and hopefully that's getting better. Uh, the way I found out about it was finally after about a very, very severe stress and having all my symptoms get much worse and just hearing that internal conversation that I try to listen to but had been ignoring for a long time, Siobhan, you have to go to a doctor to talk, talk to someone about this, which I had talked to my GP about it, but like it got louder and louder because I was really struggling and um, I finally went to a gastroenterologist and um, he told me that if I walked three miles a day, I would probably become regular. And um, he said, you know, it's a tricky situation. He gave me a prescription for an antidepressant and he didn't say it was all in my head, but that's what I took from that. He wasn't a great communicator, well-meaning guy, don't get me wrong, but he, um, well, I think he was probably trying to help my serotonin in my gut, but didn't mm -hmm. explain that to me. So anyway, I then met a girlfriend who was talking about her gut health, and that's why I want to encourage everyone to talk to their friends about their gut health, because that's the way this is going to get solved and helped, is to get the word out, and we don't like talking about it. Um, but she told me she was on this amazing, like, wild antibiotic, and she had gone and had this test where she drank the stuff, and, like, she blew into this tube, and it was all very vague. But I couldn't get that conversation out of my head. So I went back and talked to her, and I was like, okay, what? And she told me a little bit more and I got a script from that GI doctor and went to the University of South Florida to do a SIBO breath test, mm -hmm. a three hour lactulose breath test where you drink this basically sugar that the bacteria that are in the wrong place in your gut um, have overgrown. They love it. And then they fart out either methane gas or hydrogen gas or hydrogen sulfate gas. And it shows up on a, um, graph of parts per million of that graph, of that gas. Way oversimplified it, but that's the basics of it. <laughs> anyway, I um, did that and I got a false negative. I, I was told, you know, it's negative. I got the report. They had written positive and crossed it out and wrote negative, but I didn't realize that until 18 months later. They did not know how to read the test. Mm -hmm. So I actually was positive. That is another story. However, what happened for me was I lost so much of my life to this. It's a, it's definitely draining from a lifestyle perspective. Um, it's uncomfortable, of course. You can have other things come from it. Um, rosacea, restless leg syndrome, anemia. So many things have been linked to it, but here's the thing. This is very important. What it is, is when it's not an infection. It is when bacteria is overgrowing in the small intestine. And the small intestine compared to the large intestine is quite sterile which is bizarre to think about, but by comparison, it's quite sterile. And when bacteria isn't swept out of the small intestine, it overgrows, it becomes like a brewery, your own little microbrewery, and that's when you get SIBO, and that's also why the bloating comes, is because it's you know in that confined space, and it's 
all this bacteria is releasing this gas. So why do you care other than you're uncomfortable and you're bloated and you have constipation, diarrhea, alternating constipation and diarrhea? Well, it's because it could lead to malnutrition eventually. It just, it's, it's, a, it's a condition that I also just wanna say about also a lot of you I know have chronic conditions is that when you get a chronic condition managed, and it's maybe not curable for you because of your underlying cause or whatever your situation is, know that you can feel 100% better in many cases. So please don't be discouraged if you have a chronic condition because I'm living proof for me, and I know everybody's different, but I have felt now 100% better than I did before when something was unmanaged. And the reason that malnourishment occurs is because the small intestine is really where uh, nutrients go in uh, from the small intestine into our body. So basically, you're, you're, you're not absorbing things properly. And the sugars that in our diet, like lots of people are eating a ton of sugar, they're absorbed in the small intestine. You're really feeding any microbes that are up in the small intestine. There is a microbiome in the small intestine, but Siobhan, would you um, explain that, you know, that basically it's that the microbes aren't necessarily bad. They're just in right. the wrong place. It's a, it's a misplacement of them. And then there's something called the migrating motor complex, MMC mm -hmm. for short. And it's a sweeping motion uh, out through the um, small intestine in particular is what I'm referring to. And it, they call it the crumb sweeper. You know, when you go to a fancy restaurant, the analogy I love when I've heard from other people is it's a white tablecloth and the waiter or waitress comes over with this little crumb cleaner and sweeps the breadcrumbs off the table and now it's clean again. The migrating motor complex, when it's not working, will not do that last bit of sweeping of the bacteria out of the small intestine and that's when it can overgrow. That's one of the ways that you can get SIBO. There's, there are so many others, including diverticulitis, where in those little pockets, they're gonna have the bacteria living and it just can never get fully cleaned out. Um, you could have extra loops in your intestine. You could have something called Ehlers-Danlos, which is a genetic situation. It is a genetic condition where you have a lot of laxity. Um, I have that also a mild case and I can do this. If you can do this, you should probably, if you're like a Cirque du Soleil yoga teacher person, um, always flexy, gumby, um, please look into Ehlers-Danlos. Um, some people are, have it very severely and can't even walk, but it's a collagen disorder and your organs can tend to go lax and so they can get misplaced in the body and that can mess with your uh, cleansing waves. And think about if you're familiar with the ileocecal valve, which is the valve between the large intestine and the small intestine. And when that's not functioning, you can get a backwash of the bacteria into the small intestine. That's another one of many ways that you could get SIBO. Even endometriosis, I know, has a, yes. you know, is part of it too. There are many, many causes basically. Um, liver not working properly, bile problems. Uh, many people have bile problems. And I did an interview with Anne Louise Gittleman. We talked a lot about bile in the liver and there's lots and lots of 50 or 60 genes in the liver 52 or something, I'm not sure the exact amount, but right in there. And those, there's a whole bunch of genes there. So you can have gene problems in your liver and it's contributing this to this too. Um, so I'm gonna talk a little bit more uh, down the road about genes, but I wanted to, um, I know a stress, you know, I honestly think stress is an underrated cause uh, of SIBO. So do you want, can you talk about some of the emotional, you know, factors around it? 
I definitely see um, it as a contributing factor. So let's say you have a little bit of a slow motility. Let's say you do have some migrating motor complex issues or something else that's already like a compounding factor. And then you put stress on top of it, which is going to impact your um, stomach acid. It's going to impact your, like the energy stagnation in general in your body. Um, and you're going to be out of rest and relax and into fight or flight. And it, I think it's really important to take great, obviously, right? I'm going to say something that's silly. It's like, it's really important to take good care of yourself. But that's one of those things that's so easy to say and so hard to do. It's like me saying, hey, Donna, be enlightened, right? It's a great idea. <laughs> it's not easy to do, but it's super important that we're all on our journey and trying to, you know, whatever our biggest goals are. So I do think that, that when the parasympathetic, which is the the central the nervous system that is the one that controls your fight or flight or rest and digest and when that is in sympathetic more than parasympathetic did i get that right yes it creates um a lot of difficulty in the communication between the brain and the gut and that can also lead to that slow motility that cleansing way of not working as well so well, I think it's pretty easy to understand because um, if you were back to the early days when man was very primal, <clears throat> if you, you know, sense that there was a lion or some danger around you, you're going to become very alert. Your whole digestive system shuts down completely so that you can put that energy basically into running away from whatever that danger is. So that right there is constipation. You've just stopped and we're under continual stress. Also, there's a lot of research showing that stress does uh, basically alter the microbiome significantly too. So I think it is a factor. <clears throat> and we live in a time right now where we're just bombarded with stress and young people being born into this time, they don't even know what it's like to sit on a rocking chair a porch and a rocking chair in the summertime and have nothing to do, you know, it's just unheard of. I, I'm old enough to remember those days and I was super bored then, but, but there's something to just say for the days when things were much more slow. Well, um, <clears throat> let's talk about, um, let's see, I have a billion questions. I kept thinking of things to ask you. So, um, one of the big issues is that people will start to treat SIBO and then they have a relapse and that's constant. I have some thoughts about that, but I know that's something you know a lot about. So what about these people that said, well, I know I have SIBO, I've been going to a doctor, I've been trying different things. I, and let's talk about diet in a minute too, but I'm, I'm following a diet that's supposed to be good for me, but it goes away and you know, two or three, four months, it's back again. So let's talk just about that. That's the biggest issue I think too. Relapse is very common with this condition, but think about it. If your ileocecal valve, which is just, you know, it's a valve in your, in your gut, if that opens and closes or gets stuck open, which would be fairly easy depending on you and your anatomy, um, that could be leading to a relapse. There's also an underlying cause is overuse of antibiotics. Now, of course, they can save your life, so we're fans, but, you know, the over-prescribing of antibiotics can also lead to a relapse, depending on the antibiotic. There's so many reasons why. Um, some people who have SIBO, by the way, who get treated the first time, they don't get, get it again. It's not a chronic thing. It's not mm -hmm. relapsing. And then also, not everyone who gets food poisoning or has some of these underlying causes 
get SIBO. So it's not like a sure thing. But the other thing, Donna, that you're saying, which is, I know I have SIBO. I just want to say it mimics other things. So mm -hmm. that's why I am a fan of testing. But treating SIBO, let's say it's candida, right? Because as mm -hmm. you know, my candida expert, um, they're very similar in the bloating, in the um, change in bowel pattern. They're very similar in symptoms. So I know a lot of people who thought they had SIBO, treated it, it didn't go away. They finally got tested. It turns out they had candida, which is also hard to test for. Um, but that's why I like to if you want to clean up your diet and you want to eat low fermentable foods and you want to do some like antimicrobials, antifungals, chances are if you already have some problems, that's depending on the ones you use, that could clean things up pretty well and you could actually probably start to feel better. Um, so if you're really stuck and you're really trying to figure it out and you might be concerned that it could be something more serious, I was, I thought I had cancer. I insisted on three colonoscopies in the period of five years. This was, very, this was a lot because I was sure that they were going to find something. And they, thank God, did not. But it's the weirdest thing to get a relief, a relief um, diagnosis of like, hey, you don't have cancer, but like, great, but what is it? Um, and I know for a lot of people with chronic conditions, they can relate to that feeling. Um, so the relapse is something to pay attention to, but that's why I do think it's important to get tested. So you know what you're treating. So you know what you're treating. Well, as you said, you know, the fungal part of it, if it is from fungus, it's hard to show. It doesn't show up very easily on the lactulose breath test, but <clears throat> I think the best thing is history. Like if you talk to somebody and you find out that they have had antibiotics for a long time for a reason, either as a child, you know, they were constantly getting reoccurring ear infections, or as I mentioned before, the skin, you know, acne and doctors switch on that. They're still doing it today, but fortunately they're not as unconscious about it. But anyway, a history is another really good way to suspect that it's a fungal overgrowth and both. It can be very easily both. It's so easy to create this condition in the gut is what I've, and finally gotten clear about. Um, so let's do, let's talk about diet because it's very critical. I mean, that, that's the most important first place to start in my opinion is you have to change your diet. You have to get rid of sugars. And I have to give credit here to so many people, but um, certainly Dr. Allison Seebecker, who is the creator of the SIBO specific food guide, which is um, going to show people foods that they can eat that will help to reduce their symptoms. This is the cool part about how food can help us um, and quite quickly. If you do have SIBO, if you do tend to bloat, there is a series of foods in the SIBO specific food guide that can help you feel better. Ultimately, you could probably feel better within like three days. That's fast um, because the food is low fermentable. And what that means is you hear about low FODMAP if you have IBS. This is going beyond that and not just saying, well, I have IBS. I'm just going to do this diet because there are things you can do to treat SIBO. And remember, SIBO is the number one underlying cause of IBS, which I want to shout from the mountaintops because I know a lot of people with IBS who think that they have to just live with it forever. But when you're on a low fermentable diet, it does reduce the bloating. It reduces the... But right, so you're not feeding the bacteria the fuel that it likes to then become that microbrewery. So mm -hmm. you, that can be a very quick change in how you feel. Well, I think that um, you know one of the things when I'm working with people that have SIBO, even if they don't know they have, I assume they do, 
is that um, during that time when maybe they're taking uh, either antimicrobials and they're on the diet or they're even taking an antibiotic because like rifaximin and another one because their doctor has prescribed it for them. During that period of time when you're really knocking back the bacteria, um, you know, I think it's actually really important to work on establishing the right kind of inner ecosystem or microbiome. And then you that's very protective from the relapse, in my opinion. And one of the first foods that everybody says just don't do not eat are fermented foods. And I think I would agree with that for most fermented foods, uh, and all fermented foods initially. But the um, one fermented food that I've been working with for years and teaching people to make is fermented vegetables with the probiotic called Lactobacillus plantarum because it's not destroyed by most antibiotics. Bacillus bacteria are very good to take because they're not destroyed by most antibiotics. And um, then they're in that and bifidus, which is destroyed by antibiotics, they are beginning to provide some, they're helping to reestablish this microbiome that you really got to have ultimately in place or you'll never really have a healthy gut. So I just wanted to, um, there are many fermented foods, like I'm not big on kombucha because it's got wild yeast in it and, well, actually most fermented foods, but I, I would agree, agree that you don't want to never, never, never have fermented foods because you've heard that they're bad for you because there's a big difference, beer, wine, kombucha, they're, they're wild fermentation and you, ne and you maybe never want to go back on those. So I just wanted to add that on too. Well, let's talk about some of the... Um, uh, like maybe a million, literally four or five or six pages here, questions I thought about. But well, I do want to go into the genes too. But um, what about, um, you know, the some of the herbs and things that you would recommend people taking? And then also, uh, are have you kind of arrived at the, do we need antibiotics? And which antibiotics are being used most successfully? So the, there are three main treatments for SIBO, and there's, a, there's some more emerging, which is very exciting. But what you want to do is reduce that bacterial load, and you can do that through prescription uh, antibiotics, which I know we were just talking about antibiotics, and you're saying, hey, that's an underlying cause, so I want to explain something about that. You can do it with, anti, uh, with antimicrobial herbs. And Such then as? such as, I'm just doing my little three overview, and then you can do it with the elemental diet. So let's do with the herbs first. Um, a lot of people have great results, and these have been studied, um, with candybactin AR and BR, which are combination, herbal combinations, and you can find those on Amazon, um, believe it or not. And then also neem, and the brand that I see most practitioners enjoying and using with those are um, is called Neem Plus. There's a couple that are really good. And then um, uh, oregano oil, people love that encapsulated. I did that one personally for a really long time. And then Ali Med, which is the Allison, which sounds like the girl's name. It is the active ingredient in garlic. But keep in mind that if you have hydrogen sulfide, you should not do it. it. And that's like if you get a straight line on that SIBO breath test um, because it needs that sulfur. I'm again, oversimplifying it. But what you can also do is something called the elemental diet, which I just want to touch on because it's a liquid yeah, diet. Yeah, I kind of sidetracked you and let's go back to diet. It, so, there's, so 
we were just talking about the diet being the food that you eat to help reduce your, your symptoms, right? So mm -hmm. diet doesn't treat SIBO in terms of curing it. It does help to reduce your symptoms. There's something called the elemental diet, which is a liquid amino acid diet that was originally designed for feeding tubes, believe it or not, that has um, been consumed orally and is disgusting tasting because amino acids can taste really bad, but they've made better flavors and they've done some recipes now, some commercial um, you know, operations have done that, so they taste better. And that actually starves the bacteria versus killing it through an antibiotic or antimicrobial. It's literally starving them and you are on this liquid diet for 17 to 19 days. So you can do your research about that. It's called the elemental diet and there's definitely a lot of literature online about it. Uh, it's not easy, but a lot of people end up doing it. It's the most effective of the treatments and they end up saying, I wish I had done this first. So I just wanted to mention that. And then let's back it up to those antibiotics. There's an antibiotic called Rifaximin with the brand name Zyfaxin. And it is used usually for hydrogen dominant SIBO. And that would be mainly diarrhea. And if you have methane dominant, which is the kind of gas that the little, the bacteria are producing methane, like cows produce methane, right? Um, that is usually a Rifaximin and Neomycin combined and there are a couple of others that they, they do with the rifaximin. So there you go. I've heard of people doing um, grapefruit seed extract, which has not been studied. And well, I personally, I don't, I've just not observed anybody having success with that. And then I've also seen people do other antibiotics that are sort of random that have not been studied, which doesn't mean they don't work, but I haven't seen great results from hearing from people and what they've been doing. So, And Rifaximin is, a, is just local and they got it's on a broad spectrum, getting everything, killing everything. So just to throw that in. Yeah, totally. That's why it's actually the preferred antibiotic for this is because it does just stay in the small intestine. If you ever had traveler's uh, diarrhea and you were given an antibiotic, chances are it was Rifaximin. So that's what that has been um, very famous for. Well, let's talk about some of the microbes that could be there in the small intestine, like, oh, and by the way, I, I would also throw into that list that you had berberine. Yeah. Uh, berberine yeah. is really good, too, or at least for three or four months, and unfortunately, very high doses, uh, like maybe five grams. You know, that means you're taking 10 capsules spread throughout the day, so berberine is really good, too. I, I, I love berberine because it does other things, too, like help control your blood sugar. But back to these microbes that can live in the small intestine, archaea, as you mentioned, the sulfur-producing bacteria, um, E. coli from the research that I've done can be contribute to as very often as maybe 69, 70% of, of the bacteria in the wrong place. And, and E. coli is commensal, meaning that it's a normal resident, but I find that it's one of the commensal bacteria that it's most easily to turn into a pathogen because when the gut is not, you know, healthy, basically these commensal bacteria can turn into pathogenic bacteria. But whether it's pathogenic or not, it's in the small intestine. So I'd love to mention about phages, but let's talk about the archaea. I love finding information on the archaea. There's like, so let's talk about what they are and. Okay. I know that the most important thing is, uh, as far as feeding them or getting rid of them, you can't feed them, uh, is fructose, which means, you know, the FODMAP diet, one of the 
the F stands for fructose. So that's a must. You've got to get fructose out of your diet. So people are thinking, well, let me just have this apple. I read it was really good for fiber in my gut, bananas, whatever. You know, that's fructose, fruit, fructose. So that's that's one thing I wanted to throw in there. And then I'll let you run with the rest of the talk. No, talk I, I love that reminder because that happened to me, Donna. I was really obviously trying to be well. And I was, you know, doing everything that I thought was traditionally good for you. And I was hungry a lot of the time too, because I had ended up like limiting my diet just intuitively. Yeah, good point. See, this is so common. People end up in a little box with five foods that they can eat because everything else causes gas, bloating, or pain or something. So yeah, would you explain RKO2? Like, yes. you know, so, what it is, how it's different from bacteria? So archaea is this ancient organism that is often just referred to as bacteria, even though it is not officially bacteria. And it is what causes the release of methane in the gut. So um, that's what you're talking about, Donna, is the kind that causes most constipation in SIBO mm -hmm. and is um, a really fascinating, fascinating organism. Microbes, yeah. Right? And like, like, it is a microbe. Right, a micro, but it's um, it's the one that produces the methane, and I am not an expert on that, but that is that that is the way I think of it, and the way that is a baseline for you. You probably you're nerding out on that archaea, so you tell me about that. Well, <laughs> well it's a it's a really incredibly hardy one. It can almost not be destroyed. It's all over the earth. It's been here since the beginning of time, but it looked like bacteria until they started to be able to genetically you know, get, look at the DNA of these different uh, bacteria and they realize, well, wait, it's not bacteria because it has to be moved into a different class because it has um, the outside wall, the, uh, you know, the outside cell wall isn't destroyed by antibiotics. It's totally different. So they moved it into its own classification and um, is it Metho, Brana, Rebi, or something? Smithi is the really common archaea that we see. <clears throat> but other species of archaea are all over, living in this terrible places in the earth and along, in, right beside this in the a volcano. They can take, they can just survive everywhere. So they um, they do produce methane, as you said, Siobhan, and they and that then produces gas. So uh, constipation the gas that causes constipation, basically. And I, I think that's such a major cause of constipation that goes unnoticed, again, because people just don't know enough about this topic, and that includes, so they use laxatives, in other words, all their life, which weakens the adrenals. Uh, well, anyway, I think there's a, there's a product, and I know you know a lot about this, and Dr. Kenneth Brown, that specifically targets um, the archaea. So can you tell everybody about that? It's called atrontil, and I used to call it antrontil, but there's no end there. It's atrontil because you're going to feel so much better. Um, oh, I asked, that's where the name comes. I always wondered where did they get this? Where did Dr. Brown get this really weird they name? Made from? it up, and it came from atrontil. So uh, he, uh. Dr. Ken Brown, is a um, gastroenterologist who is also a researcher, but very busy in his practice. So he often takes other, you know, all the researcher and lab lab information and then puts it to good work in his laboratory of his clinic, you can call it. And I know this because I've done a master class with him and I got to really pick his brain about this. And I've asked him about, of course, Atrontiel, which is, I uh, believe, the only um, studied supplement that shows, um, that's proven to help with bloating. 
And what it is, is um, derived from what cows were given to reduce their methane. And the way he tells the story is much more elegant, but basically he had someone in his office who had previously been with um, an organization that was trying to reduce like the, the gas of cows for mm -hmm. the environment. And um, he kind of had this moment of where he was like the light bulb moment where he was putting everything together. It was like, really? Well, how would that work in people? And so Atrantiel was born from that from and with some of those natural ingredients. So it's very cool. People either when people take it, they often experience a miraculous result. And then other people take it and it just doesn't do that much for them. But um, I have people who absolutely whose lives have been transformed by the supplement that you can get on Amazon. And can you um, do you take it with a meal? You, I talked about this because everyone had these questions. How many do you take? When do you take it? He's like, don't worry about it. Take it with a meal. Don't take it with a meal. Take it, you know, morning, noon, and night. Take it just at night. It's just one of those where it's so flexible. You can just take it with what works for you. But the main thing is to take it. And um, they have a bottom of the bottle guarantee. I mean, I'm not a spokesperson for Atra Tail or anything. I'm just very excited about this development because it has been so effective for so many people and it is natural. Also, the other thing that, uh, again, the food, don't, no more fruit, but um, I like a product that, um, in addition to the Atrantil, uh, I like a product that Gaia makes called Gas and Bloach, which is peppermint, which Atrantil has, and um, has some charcoal. You can get Gas and Bloat tea, so that could be good to drink some tea uh, with your meal. So it's not doing the same thing, because Atrantil has, uh, their, can you talk about the herbs? They have, I, I can never remember the name of it. It's a bark of a tree. It's and called Cribacho or something like that. I can never pronounce it. That's why I was throwing the ball over to you here. Cribacho? We need, we need to definitely do our Entrantil um, webinar. Um, it's, well, you have one. You have one. That's the other thing I want people to know. Right. Honestly, this is such an important topic. And Siobhan has got these master classes that she does and you know, you've got to just go to her and you've got to keep listening and listening. She's got the best experts in the world that will fascinate you with how they treat people. So ultimately, there's so much more to say about this that the thing to do is go follow her and, and do the master classes. So it's called SIBO SOS. You can find us on the web. And what I've, I've done in the past two years was, um, three summits, I'm doing a fourth, and a 10-hour docu-series on this because my journey led me down just so many rabbit holes and, and so many people um, aren't diagnosed, don't have any idea that food poison can cause uh, trouble in your gut 20, 30, 40 years later. And also, um, I've done these master classes where I interview world-class experts and they basically take slides that they've done for medical conferences and they, they don't dumb it down, but they just realize that the audience is primarily patients. We have a lot of practitioners that come to Donna, you've come to them and um, they, they go over their expert topic and then we often have a Q and A after. So it's really cool because it's direct access to them. And it's also something I wish I had had when I started to figure out what was going on. Yeah. So when you do these master classes, you will have the tools you need to get well. All of this, you know, we just don't have enough time here, but that, and it takes time. It takes time to get well. It takes time to learn too. So I can't say enough about following Siobhan. Um, there's so many things like I wanted to talk to you about, I wanted you to talk about a, a barrel gas as another supplement. 
you know, you probably need to use all of the ones we're talking about, really. And um, again, diet's key too. So these enhance the diet and are really very important to take together. But what is Iberogas? Where do you buy it? Uh, when do you take it? Um, what it's does it do? A, it's quite miraculous. And uh, what it is, is a combination of herbs. It's a liquid, it's German. And um, I just want to say that this is a prokinetic. And when you were talking about relapse, I should have mentioned it then. A mm -hmm. prokinetic, think about those words, pro and motion, kinetic. Um, they help to, to make a symphony of the digestive system is uh, the way I remember from learning from Dr. Seebecker. It coordinates the digestive system and it helps the migrating motor complex do that sweeping. Okay. So after you're treated, you want to make sure you're quickly back on a pro or get on a prokinetic to help prevent relapse because it doesn't take that long for those bacteria to gather in the small intestine and repopulate. So a prokinetic is super important. Ginger is a natural one. Um, Motil Pro is one that a lot of people use. Um, it has ginger and other herbs in it. Um, That's a supplement. Is that um, Simon Jen who makes that supplement? Or do you know? See it in my head. It's a white bottle with blue on it. M-O-T-I-L-P-R-O. Yeah. Right. And let's spell Iberogas for everybody taking notes. I'm hoping they buy the summit because there's so much information in every single one of my interviews. There's no reason. I mean, you have to listen to these interviews more than once. But just for people that are not going to and are taking notes, how do you spell Iberogas and, and Motil Pro? Did I spell it right? I think I did. Motil Pro. Motil, yeah. Motil Pro. And then it's I-B-E-R-O. G-A-S-T. And they can get that on Amazon, but can you get the modal pro from Amazon? Do you have to go to? So or you might have to find someone's full script, um, you know, a professional mm -hmm. site um, that that sells to practitioners. I mean, practitioners can sell to you. Um, mm -hmm. I can't take Motel Pro because I tend to have a... a um, I'm going to call it weak, um, lower esophageal sphincter. So I tend to get that burn where you're like, burn, mm. burn off the ginger. Um, but Iberogast, I just want everyone to know about this. Um, it can help with nausea. It can help with constipation. It can help with diarrhea. It can help as a prokinetic. It's quite miraculous. Um, nausea, it's amazing for nausea. So you, you can find it online. Um, and just check into it for yourself because it's one of those things that we should all probably have in our medicine cabinet to help with tummy troubles. But I know some people take it um, maybe up to 60 drops at night to help with their migrating motor complex, which by the way, only works when you do not have food in your stomach. Right. And you, and it works about two, three hours after you eat. So you've got to have a period of time where like somebody who's eating all the time, uh, snacking and grazing, they're not getting they're they're hurting the migrating motor complex they're so not that's important motion. yeah yeah and, and you know as far as ginger goes um you can buy ginger ginger lemon tea bags but i've really found the most medicinal is just to actually take a little piece of ginger grate it even with the skin you know you just grate it and then pick up this little pile and squeeze it and you get the juice and put hot water over that and you've got a true ginger tea you know it's not from a tea bag to me that and i've just found that to be more medicinal to actually have the tea i mean the actual piece of ginger so if you're, if you're going and add some stevia and it actually tastes great so i think highly recommend that, that for uh you know and if you this is so true that a little bit of tea a little bit of soup with your meal uh warm something you know warm it actually aids digestion too 
So that's another little useful tip. And speaking of cheese, this was really shocking to me when I found out, because I'm only studying the genes and we'll go into that, but um, black tea, green tea, and coffee, like probably the three most consumed, besides water, um, beverages in the world, they all suppress uh, an enzyme in the gut called DAO, diamine oxidase, and that's a gene. And that one, um, if it's suppressed, it doesn't degrade histamine properly. So. You know, I think often histamine issues are are, are, are coupled with SIBO, but also they're, they're hist so many people are having histamine reactions, but SIBO could be the issue. It's not histamine. So SIBO could be more of an underlying cause, my experience. What do you, would you? Uh, I learned about mast cell activation syndrome from mm -hmm. Dr. Leonard Weinstock, who did a master class with us. So mm -hmm. that is definitely, there's a lot to connect histamines with SIBO and with mast cell activation. And if you find yourself constantly inflamed, if you find mm -hmm. that um, you uh, have that autoimmune kind of, like, I wonder what it is. Um, before I switch all that, please find out about what that is. Um, the other thing I just wanted to mention, and I should have said it before, is that opioid use can also cause SIBO because it slows everything down in your body. So I'm not even talking about the opioid crisis here in the States, but I am talking about if you go into deep sedation for surgery, where you're like really deeply sedated and they're working on your internal organs and stuff, um, that will slow down your migrating motor complex. Basic, so you could easily get SIBO from the pain meds that you then have to take after the surgery because it just slows everything down. And the bacteria can hang out in the small intestine and populate. So um, the other thing that they've done studies, they found that alcoholics also have in this study, like a very high proportion of the alcoholics they studied had SIBO. So think about that. It's another depressant. It's slowing things down. And is there something it's that harming the liver and affecting bowel flow too? So that's that's and it totally destroys the microbes. They have people who drink uh, alcoholic, particularly. I mean, one little tea, like when they say a, a glass of wine a day, they're talking about like a quarter of a cup is a probiotic. Anything over that is not a probiotic and it can kill the microbes in your gut too. Uh, and, and then the pathogenic ones take over. So yes, that's another factor. I'm glad you brought that up. But the part about the morphine and the opiates, uh, how they put you to sleep. And then I honestly think anybody that has any kind of surgery, right after the surgery, as soon as it's possible, whether you're in the hospital or back home, immediately um, do an enema because you're constipated, seriously constipated. You know, everything's just stopped. And I've often wondered why don't they not do colon therapy after they've put somebody to sleep like that and frozen the digestive tract basically. So I'm so glad you brought that up too. Um, well, can I talk for just a minute about genes? Yes. <laughs> genes uh, first of all, there are a whole bunch of genes that are connected to irritable bowel syndrome. And that's what they've done all the research on is not specifically SIBO, but uh, IBD and what, 75% of IBD is SIBO? IBS. Oh, IBS, yeah. Right. Okay. So what, what, what was, I wasn't saying IBS. IBD. IBD. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Is Go inflammatory bowel disease, which is mm -hmm. much more serious, much more serious. Okay, so all of those, IBS, IBD, Crohn's colitis, there are multiple it's called polygenetic. Like there are many, many genes that 
definitely make you much more susceptible. So basically, in a nutshell, we're very susceptible to gut dysbiosis conditions. Now, some of the genes I absolutely feel are critical to check are um, FUT2, F-U-T-2. And now this gene, just real quickly, um, we all have different types of sugar, like I'm an A. Or did you say you're a, a B, Siobhan? I haven't gotten it tested. I know oh. I need feel like you're a B, but anyway, I thought you'd tell me that. But anyway, um, so we all, whatever your blood type is, B or O, your sugars are different, and we secrete those sugars into our gut, into our mouth, uh, where many microbes grow, into our um, tears and sweat, you know, microbes grow in our skin too. If you're breastfeeding, you're secreting it in your breast milk. These fluids, you know, they they're, have the sugar, they're feeding where these microbes live. And so if you have variants in the food chain gene, you're not secreting your sugars into these places. So that's a big deal if it's, you're not secreting it in your breast milk. And if you've passed on this food chain gene to your baby, uh, he's not going to secrete the, his sugar or her sugar into his little gut. Um, they don't, these sugars are critical for feeding the bacteria that live there, particularly bifidus. So, um, you know, it's not supposed to be a very common gene, but in my opinion, and the you know, genetic studies and everything, I've, results that I've looked at, when I've looked at people's genetic DNA tests, I, I see it often because I think the people who would come to us are people uh, that have gut problems. So they, I see it much more, uh, I see that it's much more common than people realize. So food two is a gene that needs to be checked. Now there are two, another two other genes, MUC1 and MUC2. So they're bacteria that are in the stool, but some bacteria actually nestled into the mucus lining. And it's so amazing this gene because this just shows you perfectly the um, relationship between the microbes and the genes. You know, they, um, like this is a perfect epigenetic example that here's this gene, MUC1, MUC2. The microbes have to be in the gut, so they're not in the, the microbes have to be in the gut to activate MUC1 and MUC2. So if you've got a mouse that's grown up in a sterile environment that has no microbes in his gut, those genes are not activated, so there's no mucus produced, so you can't have microbes actually living there. So that's a perfect epigenetic example. So I, I, you know, I always check for these genes because again, you know, there really is a direct relationship between a much more direct relationship than just looking at all these other lists of genes. Um, I could read them all off, but I'm not going to. In NLG2, however, is very strongly related to, to um, all the, you know, IBD, Crohn's colitis, all of them. So you know, it's something I think as time goes along, we're going to see a lot more practitioners doing genetic reports, you know, checking them and looking for these these genes. And again, I just had to add that because I, I don't want people to uh, sign up for a gene summit and then find out, well, you didn't talk about genes at all in that entire talk. So there, there's the gene part of it. Um, so important. Go ahead. Yeah, they really are. They're really important clues. And, and, and really what they do is they help you predict what you want to prevent so you can personalize your treatment or your diet. You know, that's really what it's all about. Preventing, uh, predicting, preventing, and personalizing, basically. Well, Siobhan, are there, um, I haven't even been watching the time, but gosh, are there, there's so many. We talked about your master classes and everybody just, you have to know who Siobhan is, you really, really have to go and learn from her because this is a very important topic. Um, 
Oh, 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 I know one thing. You had told me a while ago, or maybe I learned it in one of the master classes. There's a new test out for SIBO. Oh, you know how to do lactulose? I'm glad you just said that. Uh, there, there are two things I want to just mention. And yeah, I'm, please. I please wrap up the interview. And, anything and you want to say. So bummed because I didn't mention this. So there is a test coming, a breath test for hydrogen sulfide, which is a third type of produced or can be produced when you have when you have SIBO. Um, but there's another test that you need to know about, and it's called the IBS Smart Test. And it's a blood test that can tell you if you have IBS from food poisoning. So it's not just a diagnosis of exclusion, like, oh, you don't have IBD, you don't have Crohn's, you don't have colitis, so, oh, but you have irregular bowel patterns, you must have IBS. So it's called IBS Smart, and it hmm. tests for whether or not you have IBS from food poisoning. And you can go to their website. It's ibssmart.com. And that is a breakthrough test that has just happened in the past, like, I don't know, 18 months um, in terms of this newest iteration. And that was developed by Dr. Mark Pimentel and his team at MAST, um, which is um, at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. So that's a very important test to know about. And you can... Um, really adjust your uh, adjust your brain and reconnoiter your focus once you know if that is is um, one of the reasons why your migrating motor complex isn't working the other thing is not to scare oh shaman before you go on though what's the difference between ibd and ibs oh inflammatory bowel disease is a much more serious condition than ibs which is a diagnosis of exclusion meaning you don't have ibd and you don't have Crohn's. Um, you have IBS, which was like in this category of like not other things. So we call it this. You know, when you get into those syndromes, that's tricky territory. Um, not to scare anybody, but the symptoms of SIBO can also mimic the symptoms of ovarian cancer. So please do try to figure out if you have this. There are some very sad cases. They're not a lot, but they're enough. One's enough, right? That people were diagnosed with SIBO without getting a breath test. Turned out they had ovarian cancer. So that's what I would what say. What are symptoms? Bloating, bloating, pain in the abdomen, hypersensitivity in the abdomen, um, alternating bowel patterns, um, you know, these things that we've been talking about. So I think it is, we, there are tests available. Often insurance will pay for them. Air Diagnostics Labs out of uh, Massachusetts has wonderful breath tests and um, they're wonderful customer service and they can help you. And if you're trying to find a doctor that is SIBO literate, um, then come on over and see what we've got going on at SIBO SOS because we do have a list of speakers um, that are SIBO literate. There you go. And then do people have to travel? Do they, they have to travel to these doctors? Can they see people? You know, a lot remotely? of people are now, thank goodness, doing remote consultations. And depending on the state that you live in, they can't be your primary care. Or they can't be your doctor, but they consult with your doctor. And they can certainly do a consultation with you where they can give you their insight on your case without taking on your case. So I used to think that, oh, that's not for me. I would never do that. Um, and then once I did, I'm so glad I did. Here comes Kitty. I'm so glad I did because um, I just made so much progress when you finally get that hour with the true expert. Oh my gosh, yeah. Well, well, do you mind um, telling us about, not your, not your Kitty's name, probably thought I was going to ask you that. Um, what is um, like a barrow guest, you know, when I go out to a, a restaurant or something, they come over and say, what do you want to drink? And everybody's ordering wine and drinks, martinis or whatever. I will just order um, 
like a, either mineral water or sparkling mineral with bitters in it. And, right. and that's a really old fashioned treatment. Um, I even put a little bit of stevia, I'll carry a little tiny dropper bottle, some stevia in there. It tastes pretty good to me, but um, it's, it's works like a barogast, but is a barogast like a bitter? I mean, do you know how they're different? Um, I don't because bitters actually have that bitter taste. They're similar. They're similar, certainly, in that they help to stimulate your digestion. And um, they're wonderful to, to use in conjunction with food. And bitters are incredible and super helpful and probably good for everybody to help get those gastric juices going. So um, that and digestive enzymes are probably the most underrated digestive tools out there, along with being properly hydrated. So um, I definitely am glad you mentioned bitters because they're really, really important. You know, and I forgot to mention, I said I was going to talk about amorphages. Um, because we've literally entered into a um, phase stage, basically, that antibiotics aren't working for us anymore. Like drug companies aren't even developing them because as soon as they do and they start to use them, the bacteria are so smart. They outsmart the, the um, antibiotic and then they don't work. The antibiotics don't work. So now we're in like the post-antibiotic era, era and phages are appearing on the scene, although they were, before antibiotics were so popular, they, they were used, uh, phages were used in Europe. Um, they're basically viruses, and they're, uh, for every bacteria in the planet, there are 10 phages, and the phages are specific, so they target one bacteria and only that bacteria, or one group, like E. coli, for example, which is the, bacteria, the phage that we sell, uh, called echophage, but it, um, it targets E. coli, and I have found, because I don't, I don't know if, you know, E. coli is in the small intestine or not, but just taking it in, in people and in animals too. Animals can get SIBO, by the way, right? Um, you know, that there's something about this specific um, phage that they, they go in and they attack, they don't attack any of the good bacteria. They only attack, the, like in this case, E. coli. But they may, they're, they're finding them now because this is really important new therapy uh, for Lyme disease, uh, different types of strep and so on, they'll get, you take the phage that uh, is going to target that particular bacteria. And there are 10 phages for every bacteria on the planet. And they go in and they inject, they attach to the bacteria, they inject their DNA right into the middle, you know, right into the cell, the little bacterial cell. And then they start to replicate it and then they expand into the trans and then they blow up the bacteria, the E. coli, the pathogenic E. coli, for example. And then they're out in the bloodstream attacking everything, all, all a bunch of other E. coli. So I, I have really found, I, I know that ephages are not mentioned, but I found it has a calming effect on people that are, are using it. So I would add that to the list too. You know, why not try it? Because what I find is that people, um, they might see a difference right away, but they might not, you know, see a like a black and white difference, but there's a calmness that's happening. And I think that they're helping, you know, they're like policemen gathering around the E. coli so they can't become pathogenic. And again, it seems from the research that I've done that E. coli are often, not always at all, but are often um, an issue in, in SIBO too. So I wanted to add that part. Um, but Siobhan, I don't want to steal the show here because no, you're the one that I want people to go to the 
Donna, thank you for all your good work and for sharing your excellent information. And everybody, buy the summit because you need to refer to it back over and over and over again. It's super complicated. And Donna and her experts, I know, have done a great job for you. And I can learn more about mine. So thank you, Siobhan. Thank you so much. Um, how can people reach you and get signed up for these masterclasses? And, and, and even though they've happened, they're all recorded, like you can join at any time. Right, anytime. such a good point. Yes, um, you can come on over to SIBOSOS.com. At first, SOS stood first, you know, come save me, help, help. And now I've come to learn that it means we have to save ourselves. So it's SIBOSOS.com, I'll see you there. That is so true. We have to save ourselves by educating ourselves and that's what our summits are about. So thank you so much for the work you do. I just, I wanna say again, very clearly, most people have SIBO. If they have any kind of gut problem, they should learn about SIBO and start to treat themselves. And whether they get a diagnosis or not, these are this is very, very wise uh, advice to follow, basically. We definitely need to get people educated. It's probably one in 10 people that have it. So I want you to be aware of it at the very, very least. So you can you know, pick up on the signs and also help your friends who are suffering, who don't even know the condition has a name, because that was me for most of my life. Great, thank you very much.